I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Jared Yates Sexton, author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Filled Its People, joins us to discuss his latest book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. In said book, Jared examines how the failure of the neoliberal consensus has led to the rise of far-right movements both in the U.S. and Brazil, and what needs to be done to counteract right-wing authoritarianism's bid for power in an age of crisis. Amongst other things, in this conversation we talk about the now infamous January 6th DC riots and the more recent Brazilian uprisings against Lula da Silva, the rise of QAnon and Christian nationalism, the far right and the power of mythological narratives, and much, much more. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Jared Yates Sexton author of The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with, Jared Yates Sexton, author of American Roll, The Man They Wanted Me to Be, The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, and most recently, the book we're going to be talking about the awesomely titled The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. And boy, is that a title. How are you doing today, Jared? 
I'm doing great. Thank you. I I listen. I like titles. I've always liked titles. I want I, I that is high praise. I'll take it. So thank you. So let's just get right into it. I I, I mean, uh, I I don't know if you picked the title. I know sometimes uh, with publishers, titles uh, come about in weird ways. But that title, The Midnight Kingdom, what is that referring to? Well, first of all, um, no, this was absolutely from the moment that I thought about doing this. It was the Midnight Kingdom. And and the reason is uh, it's it's based on some quotes and ideology from a guy named Alexander Dugan. So anybody out there who has heard of this guy, he is this Russian ideologue who has created this neo-fascistic ideology that, um, you know, in large part has inspired things like the Ukraine war. Um, but it's based on the idea uh, that I, I I personally have come to believe, uh, and a lot of others have come to believe from different political spectrums. Like I stand in opposition to people like Alexander Dugan, but the left and the right, I think, are starting to come to an understanding that something isn't right, that something isn't working in the world, and that this status quo, uh, these systems that we had been told were going to last forever, right? We had arrived at the end of history. There was nothing more to come. Liberal democracy, American liberal democracy, American globalism was exactly how the world was going to last forever, that these institutions have come to the point where they are no longer working and they're going to re be replaced by something else in some way, shape or form. And that crisis, uh, it, it stems from, uh, you know, concentrated wealth. It comes from hypercapitalism. It comes from uh, these repeatable cycles in history that that I've I've looked at in my research. And it, it, it becomes very obvious very quickly that we are on the precipice of a major struggle, a generational future defining struggle. And that crisis is uh, it's rapidly approaching. Let's talk about that since you said, um, you know, cycles in history, because I don't want people to get the wrong impression. You're not like uh, some Steve Bannon guy talking about the fourth turning. So what do you, what do you mean by uh, cycles in history? Yeah. So if for anyone who's ever had to read like the fourth turning stuff, like this is the idea. It, it's Tucker Carlson loves this stuff. You know, lately there's been all this stuff. It's like hard times make hard men. Good times make soft men. And that's like this repeatable cycle. It's a fascistic uh, ideology, uh, which, by the way, was originally called Kyklos, which was, you know, this Greek idea that like democracy and all these things like they slowly fall apart and they lead to, you know, weak times and people have to renew it. What I'm actually talking about is how power protects itself and how power expands itself. And what I found uh, through this research is it's through conspiracy theories, the same kinds that we have seen, um, you know, in, in, in QAnon, in Trumpism, in, in the Republican Party. Those things that we're seeing, that New World Order, Deep State, whatever you want to call it, these stories have been continually used and that power in society is based on stories. It's based on stories, mythologies, religious ideas, white supremacist mythologies, and that these things are flowing throughout history. And you can always tell when you're arriving at one of these major crises that's going to change everything. And right now, all of the elements are in place for something that's going to look a lot like past moments of, of crisis, whether that's the rise of fascism or the capitalist meltdown of World War One, or the turning of feudalism into capitalism, like all of these different eras, they all sort of look similar. They all involve the same sort of conspiracy theories, the same types of lies. And uh, we're unfortunately another one of those processes. So let, let's delve into that more deeply, yeah. because uh, how did we get to this sort of age of paranoia? In, in some ways, I've, I've sometimes argued it's always been with us, right? I mean, you can go back to uh, the era of the Civil War, you know, if you read like tabloids from 
yeah. the Civil War era, you'll you'll find papers claiming, oh, the Vatican is is yep. trying to kill Lincoln. Uh, you know, we've always had sort of nativist conspiracy yep. theory culture here. Um, Hofstadter wrote a whole book about this. So, like, how do we get to the point we're at now? Because it seems like it's always been with us, but maybe it's an overdrive now. Well, and that's one of those things. Actually, you know, paranoia is the basis of modern American society. We're talking about before America was ever a country, you know, the the people who came over and colonized this and, of course, carried out a genocide against the Native Americans. They left England because they were paranoid, because they were, you know, full of conspiracy theories. Of course, everything from like the Salem witch trials, it's the idea that Satan is out in the forest and he's conspiring with the women, you know, and all of that. You look before America was even founded, it leads to the takeover of the government of Maryland. It leads to insurrections. You get to the actual founding, the revolution. That's based on a conspiracy theory. The idea that England is going to radicalize the Native American population and the enslaved people and turn them into their own sort of like fifth column. You get to the election of 1800. Thomas Jefferson is called an Illuminati plant and puppet, right? This has always been here. And I, I, I want to point out real fast, and I like to say this in every interview, it's important. Everyone now wants to pretend that Donald Trump is like, why this is happening, right? If only we can get past Donald Trump, everything will be fine. Donald Trump is a symptom. He is not the disease. Um, Donald Trump could not have reached the place where he was if America wasn't primed for this stuff. And if there wasn't a wealth class pumping billions of dollars into this type of fear mongering, nativism, white supremacy, conspiracy theory, all of it. What is happening right now? It is a very specific time that has been repeated throughout history, which is this. When wealth gets too concentrated in too few hands, eventually the people who have that wealth, they buy off the government. They buy off representative government. They, they more or less turn governments into their own sort of processes to make sure that the impediments to their further enrichment and further empowerment are knocked down. Regulation goes away. Uh, social programs go away. And eventually you reach a point where there's so much wealth concentrated that the system can't continue, right? Like there's not enough money to go around. People can't even purchase things or keep this, you know, the products uh, circulating. So eventually you reach a point where the system sort of wobbles. It gets off kilter. And the next thing you know, you reach a point of crisis, um, crisis of faith, crisis of, uh, of, of energy, crisis of this mythology. And the next thing you know, the wealthy always, always, always give money to fascist, proto-fascist, neo-fascist, right? Because they need somebody to protect them. They need somebody to destroy any leftist elements, any solidarity elements, any labor unions, any, any reform movements. And eventually what happens is you have a reactionary regressive turn as the people who have the power face a challenge and they start moving towards the right, towards reactionary politics. And eventually you have one of these existential crises. Something I wanted to discuss with you, you mentioned conspiracy theories, um, and that figures a lot into your analysis in the book. And it, it's a topic that's weird for me because I do think powerful people, especially very reactionary, powerful people conspire. I think limited conspiracies happen. Um, for me, I always differentiate though, where I will say, uh, to me, the problem with conspiracy theories are that a lot of them are, are based around like a, a grand conspiracy narrative. You know, it's, it's one group controlling the world. It's the Illuminati, the Masons, uh, oh, the Jewish people. Uh, you know, I, but like conspiracies happen. I think Iran Contra was a very conspiratorial event, right? But the way that the right wing talks about conspiracies, they're talking about something that isn't 
limited to like one event or you know a small group conspiring it becomes this grand narrative of history a a conspiratorial worldview so could could you talk a little bit about that because i do think there are real conspiracies that happen uh but when we say conspiracy theories we're really talking about people that believe all of history is like defined by it yes exactly so this is an important thing and i actually think uh my friend sarah kinzier wrote a really good book recently called they knew which basically puts forward this idea that like the, uh, the talking about conspiracy theories and and like saying that they're not real like it actually undermines the fact that there are many conspiracies out there and and it happens in terms actual conspiracies happen from a top-down perspective so you know we're recording this on january 24th not to talk out of school but the the davos uh, uh, thing just happened, of course, in Switzerland, where the world's most powerful and wealthiest people got together in a bunch of rooms and they they have all these conversations, all these meetings. They're having discussions about where things are going, what to expect, what they need to do on this side of the political social problems, what they need to do over here. There are powerful people in rooms having discussions about what should happen and how things should be handled. The difference of what we're talking about, and this is throughout the ages, the conspiracy theories that we're talking about, which are used, by the way, by the same people who are in those rooms, because what they do is they take the onus off of themselves, the responsibilities off of themselves. So here's a complicated explanation of what has happened. The neoliberal consensus, which has taken control of the world since the 1970s, 1980s, we can associate it with Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, whatever basically came in and got rid of the idea from the New Deal that the government should invest in social structures, that there should be work programs, that people should be able to retire, you know, or people should be able to have health insurance or have better lives. It came in, it created austerity, it got rid of impediments to wealth and power, it, you know, it deregulated everything, it destroyed the labor movement, and it created a world that was specifically tailored for the wealth class within the capitalist system. That's how this happened. And by the way, I want to go ahead and use a personal example. My family, I come from a very, very poor family in Indiana, factory workers, laborers, miners. They don't understand why things have happened. They don't understand why the America that they grew up with changed, why the factories went away, why that small town has started to dwindle, why they're living shorter lives, why they didn't get ahead of where their parents were, right? They need explanations. And right now, the only people explaining to them what's going on are those people, the, the conspiracy theorists, the right wing, the authoritarians. And these conspiracy theories are really powerful and they all follow the same idea. It's not capitalism that did it. It's not the wealth class that did it, right? It's this shadowy evil over here. So it replaces the self-dealing self-interest of capitalism with supernatural evil or malevolence, you know, violence, basically. It says the Jews are controlling the world. Uh, the globalists are controlling the world. George Soros is controlling the world. The Russians, you name it. And by the way, it's always involving vulnerable communities. Like it was the Jewish people because they were easily found. They were usually kept in a certain place, right? They were disliked because of their role in the burgeoning capitalist system. Basically, it's anybody that the wealth class wants to defeat, right? It's the gay people. It's the trans people. All of the, like, you know, it's the socialists. It's the left. They are controlling everything. And this conspiracy theory, by the way, since Rome, I, I traced all of this back to even the beginning of modern history. It's the same story. Here we are. We are a special people. 
There's something about us that is different, whether it's a nation or a group or a race. We are special. We have good on our side. But there's this outside force that's coming after us. But guess what? They're working with traitors in our midst. And you'll always notice that the traitors are the people who would reform, who would regulate, who would do anything to actually start to like, you know, uh, create more fairness. Meanwhile, the communities are unwilling agents of this. This is why during Black Lives Matter, it was, this is a Marxist, you know, thing. Or the same thing with civil rights. They said Martin Luther King Jr. was a communist agent, that the, the civil rights movement was a secret Marxist plan. But this story, it takes the responsibility off of the people who have benefited from power and wealth, and it puts it onto their political enemies. And it obfuscates history. But it also, here's an important part of it, it is an explanation for people who are desperate for an explanation. Religion helps with it. Patriarchal ideas, historical ideas help with it. But it creates a situation that feels right. You know what I mean? As opposed to, I'm sorry, but like the only reason I can sit here and talk to you about neoliberalism in this history I took on tens of thousands of dollars of student debt to go learn research. I've been around these circles. I've been around academics. I have free time because, you know, I, I was able to do this stuff, piece this stuff together. People don't always have that time. They don't always have the specialized knowledge. It's not that they're stupid. It's that they haven't had that ability. These they may are, not even, in a lot of ways, they may not even have the resources or they're just trying to get through their everyday life working maybe two, three jobs. Yeah. I Just to, listen, this is going to be interesting to five people. But I promise it's it, it 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 helps. So like I'm a former academic. I left academia for a uh, large part because of what we're talking about, specialized knowledge, right? We have a bunch of professors and specialists who are talking to each other. They don't talk to my family. If my family's not in the classroom, if my family's not in the class, if my family's not part of their processes, they never hear any of this. As a professor, I had free subscriptions to some of the most powerful search engines in the world. I got to look at so many documents, so much research, all that stuff. They don't have that. They don't have any access to this stuff. They don't even have this. They haven't been taught the skills necessary to do it because they've been relegated to a toil class. They've been relegated to a working class. They're not supposed to know about this stuff. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with this book and my other work, I'm trying really hard to take this specialized knowledge and to translate it. I want, I want, like, I want a regular person who hasn't had to do all the stuff that I've done or the specialists have done to be able to pick up this book and have a narrative and have an understanding of things that otherwise have been honestly walled off from them. And intentionally, by the way, that's what history shows us is that walling off is intentional. So then with regards to at the beginning of the book, you take this all the way back to Rome. Uh, why Rome? Um, and what can we learn from ancient Rome? Well, okay. So Rome is a really interesting thing because, you know, when you think about what the Roman Empire was, it's the hegemonic influence over so-called Western civilization, right? It has this story about itself that it's it's what civilization is, that it's like, you know, if you're here, you're a citizen. If you're out there, you're a barbarian. Whatever happens to you out there, you deserve. Well, the Roman Empire works based on the mythology of like the, the Roman emperors, that they are gods themselves, right? There's an imperial cult. You worship them. Well, over time, it turns out the competence is not hereditary. And you have a bunch of emperors who are failing and Rome is failing and people can't understand why. When that mythology starts to fluctuate, 
you have to replace it. There has to be a new story that takes its place and creates the operating of, of the world. That's what Christianity did. And it did it because there are so many components of Christianity that help power, apocalypticism, righteous persecution. Uh, monotheism is really good for when you have citizens, barbarians, right? When you have the wealth class, the working class. Uh, also patriarchal ideas, uh, also dominion over the earth, you name it. Christianity created the new mythology. It tells us how power works, how these narratives protect and embolden power, but also how these operating systems change, right? We go from the Roman Empire cult to the Christian cult. We go from the Christian Roman or, uh, cult into the feudalistic Christian cult. We go from the feudalistic Christian monarch cult to the capitalist Christian cult, the American cult, so on and so forth. That all of these moments are very, very understandable when you realize that it's these stories and these mythologies that keep them trucking along and legitimize wars, genocide, the wiping out of entire cultures, enslavement, some of the worst things imagined. I also wanted to talk about, I know um, at the beginning of your book, you deal with uh, your background in uh, Christianity and um, and whatnot. So could you talk about that background and, and your family and whatnot? Yeah. So I grew up in this poor family and we were extremely religious, but it was a very particular type. I know that there are some people who, when they hear the word religion, they think about hanging out on Sundays and maybe potlucks. You know, the worst thing about it is on Sunday, you're bored for a couple of hours. Uh, but what we've seen recently with Christian nationalism is totally in line with what I grew up with in, in the 1980s. And basically on Sundays, we would go in, we would read from the book of Revelation, and we would be told about conspiracies, the New World Order, Satan, you know, was a puppet master behind the scenes, uh, our movies, our television, our politics, all of it was being controlled by the devil. And by the way, deep down at the heart of it, it's not just anti-Semitic, it's also white supremacist and white nationalistic. And so what I saw as a child was a really, really paranoid terrifying bastardization of Christianity, a heretical sect of it. Um, what I didn't realize is that that bastardization had been in place uh, since it merged with imperial power in Rome. It had worked its way through the ages. And in modern America, it had metastasized into the evangelical right, which created the neoliberal uh, consensus that we're talking about right now. And so what I realized in 2016 when I was sneaking into Donald Trump rallies and talking to supporters and having conversations was that that evangelical bastardization and sect, that cult basically that I'd been a part of, it was no longer just relegated to my hometown. It was no longer relegated to the churches I grew up in or the, the, the houses I grew up in. It had become a political force. And not only had it become a political force, but it was an incredible weapon and that it was starting to grow basically in a society and I think this is one of the reasons that we're in the crisis we are now. People are desperate for meaning. Neoliberalism and hypercapitalism have created just a hollow existence. Well, right? we're, we're, I mean, uh, uh, not to interrupt you, but, you know, sometimes I, I, when I was younger, I, I read a few conservative rags like uh, the American conservative. And I, it's odd because I went through a libertarian phase at that time and reading the American conservative, I actually started moving to the left because I read that magazine because they were talking uh, in a lot of the issues about the issue of atomization in society. And it's funny because although I don't consider myself a conservative, I started thinking about it and I'm like, hey, 
maybe my libertarian views are a little bit off base because we do seem more atomized. We don't have this sense of community. And oddly, reading the American conservatives saying that pushed me oddly leftward. I started reading left-wing sort of critiques of the atomized society and neoliberalism. But I bring this up because I think there are there is this um, right wing that talks about issues like atomization and neoliberalism. But they, they the way they talk about it is to say, hey, this is bad. Let's push this agenda instead. Yes. And that agenda isn't necessarily the best way to deal with this either. I am so glad that you brought this up because this is one of the fundamental misunderstandings of our modern moment. When people look at the Republican Party, they think that the Republican Party is just like a completely homogenous party. That's not what's happening. There is a new conservative reactionary movement, an authoritarian movement, which, by the way, looks a lot more like Viktor Orban's Hungary or Vladimir Putin's Russia than it does Mitch McConnell's Kentucky. Right. Because they look at people like Mitch McConnell or even recently we saw it with Kevin McCarthy. They hate these people. They hate them. They do not like neoliberalism. They do not like the structure of the world. And so what has happened is and, and, and I'm glad you, you brought it up the way that you did. The right right now is the only political influence that is offering a criticism of the status quo. The Democratic Party has been reduced to institutional guardians. Everything's fine if we can just get past Donald Trump. Don't worry, everyone. The, the bones of this house are great. We know that's not true. And the problem is that the left has been wiped out. When people start talking about the left in America, there is no left in America. And that, by the way, that was that was on purpose. Neoliberalism intentionally wiped out leftists. They went after labor unions. Around the world, things like Operation Condor and Operation Gladio murdered people. The largest terrorist organization of all time was Operation Condor, and it was carried out by so-called Western democracies and South American dictators in order to murder leftists. We have now we are now left in a place where, and people know this, but I'll go ahead and state it for the record. Liberals does not mean left. That doesn't mean that they are ideologically left. Left is uh, more of a redistributive idea, a reform idea, a solidarity idea. But we have reached a point where the right says we are atomized. They're 100% right. Neoliberalism intentionally isolates us. I, neoliberalism was born out of a fear of mass populist movements. They distrusted democracy as much as they distrusted Nazism. They saw them as two sides of the same coin, more or less. They wanted to get past democratic government. They wanted to get past representative government. We have now reached a point, though, where neoliberalism, which tells us we're all on our own, where and, and here's the thing, like I've only known you now for a half hour, give or take. You seem trustworthy. We're engaging in ideas. I know where you're coming from. I'm not expecting you to stab me in the back. We're having a little bit of intimacy, right? I can trust you. Maybe you and I could even work together on things. But the default setting that we all operate on, um, some people call it homo economicus. Uh, it's the idea that we are all in this alone. Nobody is trustworthy. The best, by the way, example of this, I and I'm sorry to bring this up on your show, it's the TV show Survivor, right? And if you look at something like Survivor, it's the neoliberal mindset worldview in, in, in a nutshell. We're all on an island trying to build something. I'm engaging with you. I'm like building a structure. But then I turn to the camera and I say, I just lied to him and I am going to get one over on him. That's how we're supposed to see the world so that we don't trust one another. 
The right, however, at this point, is making the argument that the only means of making this work is by putting everybody under theocratic rule, by basically reinstalling Christian controls, uh, old, um, almost feudalistic ideas of wealth and power and who's in control, patriarchal control, white supremacist control. What's missing is the left-wing criticism. What's missing is an actual criticism of what capitalism has done and what hierarchical power has done and what neoliberalism has wrought. Because I completely agree. The problem is atomization. The problem is the hollow existence that neoliberal, neoliberalism relies on. And we have to create some sort of an alternative to that. I mean, just for listeners, because sometimes I think people will hear these words we're using and not understand what we mean. So when we talk about atomization and neoliberalism, what do we mean? Because to me, when I say atomization for people that may be confused, I'm saying, you know, we live in this society where the onus of everything is put on the individual. There is no like, oh, we have to rely on each other. We're part of a bigger community and a society. That to me is what it means um, to say we live in an atomized society where everything is put on the individual. And there's, no, I mean, it's that old Thatcher quote, right? Uh, there is no society, only the there individual, is no only society. the family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. Like, what happened with the rise of neoliberalism? And by the way, this isn't something that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher cooked up. They were the public relations front for it, right? This was a political economic movement that was a long time in the making. And it basically pushed forward the idea. And atomization is like this. Um, a great book for anybody who hasn't read it, Bowling Alone. Go out and read Bowling Alone is fantastic. It's the idea that all of these old structures that we had have been absolutely destroyed, whether it's civic organizations, participa participation in the electoral process at a local, regional, and national level. We've been reduced to watching politics on our TV. It's become a television show where we root for heroes and villains. Right. Um, you know, it feels so much larger than us that we can never do anything about it. It's the destruction of labor unions. It's the destruction of class solidarity. For instance, by the way, um, you know, I was talking about I come from this poor family. My poor family doesn't live like they're poor. They live in debt because they they believe now that they're middle class, right? They live with middle class trappings and they, you know, basically live from one moment to the other overwhelmed with debt. That undermines class solidarity. It keeps them from joining with other people of their station, you know, economic station. And what has happened with neoliberalism is it literally looked at these democratic populist movements and said they're the most dangerous things in the world. We need to reorganize the idea that a society owes itself anything or that people are owed anything. And everybody is an individual that will either sink or swim. And that is the defining ideology of neo neoliberalism. So one thing that's interesting for me when talking about the sort of reactionary right and how they respond to things, I think people sometimes um, assume that it's all completely incoherent, but I do think that they sort of have their own construction of history. You know, like I'll talk to right wingers, um, even when I was in college, that would say to me things like FDR was a was a socialist. He was a commie or, you know, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, he Oh, he was a, he was a cat. That's communism. What he wanted. And to me, I, I look at that and I'm like, what are they talking about? Uh, but it's like they have a very specific way of interpreting history and their definitions of communism and capitalism, I think at times differ from our own. Oh, I mean, you know, one of the damnedest things, and, and I still think about this all the time, 
we keep hearing this thing recently where like a Marjorie Taylor Greene is like these woke corporations or these communist corporations, right? Which basically has become shorthand for they're trying to control us, right? And and I would even argue so much that um, I, I, I think a large problem in America is how little we're educated about any of these things. Um, we, we're not actually taught what communism is. We're not taught what Karl Marx had to say about anything, right? We're not actually taught like our actual history because to investigate that is to understand that like the white supremacist stuff has always been here, that like these conspiracy theories have always been churning, the suppression has always been taking place. I mean, when I talk about neoliberalism and I talk about how dangerous it is, people think I'm talking about liberalism. People think that I'm talking about, you know, like certain liberal politicians. It is a Democrat and a Republican phenomenon. It spans both sides of the aisle. What we're talking about right now with the reactionary right, they absolutely have their own worldview. And it has been present for forever. It is the idea that there is a natural Right. That there is a group of people that uh, and this supersedes law. It supersedes society. Any anything that liberal democracy has created. It's the natural order. It's the it order the, that they claim exists in nature. It's very social Darwinist. In a way. And by the way, it, it originally was called the great chain of being in, in feudalism. It was the idea that up here is God and then there's this and then this, this and this. That was a religious orthodoxy. They want to return to that because they believe in eugenics. They believe that some people are like their blood is better. You know, their genetics are better. This is how, of course, you arrive at eugenics being part of capitalism and also part of American culture. It's where it was born. Right. They turned it into their own science. They turned it into their own orthodoxy. It literally is, you can call it fascistic, you can call it Nazism, you can call it whatever you want, but it all traces back to exactly what you're talking about, which is that great chain of being, the idea that some people should rule above all others and everybody else just needs to get out of the way. Democracy, they see it as a weakness. They see it as something that promotes mediocrity. They see it as something that uh, absolutely endangers the rightful rulers of the world. Now, that is something that libertarians sometimes believe. It's something that sometimes neoliberal Republicans and neoliberal Democrats believe. This strain that we're dealing with now, this is why we're looking at a crisis. This strain is a whole different story. These are people who literally look at a society and they say, we need a neo-feudal order. And if you listen to them, and this isn't conjecture, not conspiracy theories, if you read their speeches, you read their papers, you read their conferences, you read their books, you hear them at their own words, that's what they're advocating. It's not, it's not you know, hair on fire, uh, uh, hysterical nature. It's literally what they're advocating for. So one thing that's really interesting to me too is that, you know, we have these characters like Tucker Carlson who are sort of styling themselves as I'm against the establishment. Uh, they're, they're sort of positioning themselves as the ones questioning power. When I think the reality is uh, these people in a way are protecting power. You know, it goes back to the old idea of, um, you know, that term anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools, right? Like instead of looking at what's broken within the system, you know, a right winger or a reactionary will say to you, oh, no, 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 that's not true. It's just because this one bad group of people has power. And if we overthrow them, everything will be fixed. And it's, it goes back to what you were saying about it's a simple and powerful explanation. Uh, but it sort of shifts our attention away from trying to deal with the issue that's within the system itself and blaming one group instead. And in that way, it actually protects the powerful. No, it absolutely does. Because what what we're actually looking at is that 
Neoliberalism, by the way, loves authoritarianism. They love dictators. It's where it was born. For anybody who doesn't know this, look up 1970s Chile, right? This is where the United States of America overthrows Salvador Allende, a leftist who was elected democratically president of Chile. Uh, they overthrow him and they get Augusto Pinochet, the general, in as a military dictator. Guess what? That's where neoliberalism was birthed from, because he was able to install the discipline, to break the labor unions, to allow international capitalism to come in and turn it into a cog in the machine. You take a look at someone like Friedrich Hayek, who is one of the brains behind neoliberalism. And even he said in so many words, and this is uh, this is true, he said that individual freedom is sometimes more safe under a dictator than it is a democracy. We have now reached a point where neoliberalism sort of has come to a crossroads. We're watching globalism unwind itself, right? Like, so this new Cold War that's, you know, taking shape between the United States and China, we've already seen it's leading to American protectionism. We're investing money in industrialization in the United States of America, so we're not relying on China. We're starting to create our own sphere of influence. That is unthinkable in the end of history era. The idea that globalism is how it's always going to work and it'll never end. Things are being rolled back. The question now is, do we get out of neoliberalism? Do we return to like a New Deal consensus? Do we move even further left and get into redistribution, you know, universal stuff? Or is this Tucker Carlson uh, approved illiberalism, which is what it is, by the way. We, are we going to move past liberal democracy and basically start installing dictators? Are we going to start using the power of the state to put things right? And for anybody at home who's like, man, that sounds a lot like fascism, ding, 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 that's exactly what it is. Because what happens after you know the market crashes in the 20s? You have to put it right. You have to start having strong men using force and power of the state to try and make the system continue forward the way that it had. We're we're at another moment like that. You know, that's not to sit here and say that Tucker Carlson is Adolf Hitler, right? That's that's infantile. But you're exactly right. It is about trying to protect the power that is already established versus letting any sort of reform or change or progress actually put it in danger. And that's exactly what's behind all of this. If we could, too, since you mentioned, uh, we, we talked about Christianity earlier. So I, I grew up Catholic. Uh, I've always been, uh, this is why I've never understood the evangelical movement or like uh, you talk at the beginning about people that were into holy rulers in the 80s. That stuff has always been foreign to me. Um, and it's it's interesting because I don't think you're necessarily attacking you know, uh, people being religious or even pious in the book. So I want you to like maybe explain that because I do think, uh, you know, sometimes there's this view that the right pushes that, oh, you know, anyone who is uh, like left of Ronald Reagan hates religion uh, or hates religious people. And for me, it's the opposite. I, I have no issue with, you know, religious or even extremely pious people as long as they don't you know, try to like force their views on me or anything like that. Well, you know, since this book has been released, I've been getting so much hate from the idea that this is an anti-religion book. That's not what this is. Actually, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, like I'm a person who escaped evangelicalism, particularly this nationalistic cult that I was telling you about. But in writing this book and understanding this, I've actually come to a new appreciation of spirituality. I actually think that we have to create our own spirituality that makes us have faith in one another, which, by the way, if, if you want to really get down to brass tacks, is what the gospel of Christ as written is about, right? So what I'm talking about is a heretical bastardization, weaponization of religion. 
And I find it interesting because you just brought up, you know, being a Catholic, a large component right now of this authoritarian movement is a bunch of converted Catholics. And they're coming into the Catholic religion, right? They're they're calling themselves traditional Catholics or trad cats or whatever. And they're coming into the Catholic religion and all of the people who were Catholics are like, what in the hell are you talking about, right? Because actually it's evolved past this old ideology that held sway over the world, right? Catholicism as a power was how like power was consolidated, not just in late Roman times, but in the feudal era. Eventually, liberalism breaks sort of the control over information and orthodoxy, and it all changes, right? This also takes place in terms of like the evangelicals, Protestants, you name it. But now all of a sudden, they're like, they want to restore that. You know, they want to restore the control. They're not interested in the tenets of faith. In fact, if you take a look at the Catholic Church that took control of all these power systems, they weren't operating based on tenets of Christianity. They didn't give a shit about any of this. They basically were taking a look at how to control people, right? But when you really break down what all these religions and all these spiritualities are saying, it all comes down to the same thing, which is we're all part of something larger. We're all interconnected. We, there's something bigger than ourselves that, that connects us. Well, when that gets broken down into this weaponized bastardization, it's incredible for control. But if you actually start to break it away from the systems of power, it actually offers, at least in part, the antidote. You know, when you start actually talking about we're all interconnected and interdependent, that is the antidote to neoliberalism. That's the antidote to authoritarianism. So it's not anti-religion. It's anti-bastardized, weaponized religion. Yeah, and I wanted to delve into that a bit more with this idea of, and I know you tackled in the book with regards to Dugan and figures like Julius Evola, uh, this idea of traditionalism, because that's also, I find it a weird concept because I think traditionalists almost have to ignore that there's probably breaks within their own view of history and the reality of history, as in, you know, I think I, I, traditionalism as a concept doesn't really exist uh, until, you know, the dawn of modernity and whatnot. So, I mean, the people they're referring to as traditionalists that, that would have existed centuries ago, they wouldn't have thought of themselves as traditionalists. You know, it, this is a concept that comes out of their own sort of reaction to modernity, and therefore it's tied to all of that. They're not really – I mean, I, I don't think their view of history is based on actual history or how people viewed the world. No, and JG, I wish we had about three hours to get into this because this is actually – and I, I wish also because, you know, this book – takes modern history and deals with it. I couldn't get into this as much as I wanted to. This deserves thousands of pages. Traditionalism, as we're discussing it, is an esoteric, paganistic type of idea, right? It's the idea that, you know, everything, it, it gives you Aryan societies. It uses Atlantis, uh, forgotten history, you know, like former generations of, of humans that had psychic powers. They had control over, you know, super abilities. They were giants. Like, it, it's so absurd. But what it does is it shows the power of these mythologies. And if you actually start drilling down into some of this stuff, you cannot have fascism or Nazism or this modern authoritarianism without those mythologies, right? It, it, like, Nazis were, it, it's incredible to actually talk about this. 
Nazism was based in part in the idea that there were secret civilizations in the hollows of the earth, you know, that had psychic powers or that aliens, you know, had visited and that, like Atlantis was a real thing. They used incredible amounts of resources during World War II to like go off on expeditions trying to find Atlantis, you know. Like, it's interesting that you mentioned this because I've always said to people and I know now it's talked about a lot more but i remember when when the tv show ancient aliens was yes. popular i would say to people you know that chariots of the god stuff that sounds really kind of i don't know there's some racialist element to this that people well, aren't getting well i talked about it in the book because i grew up with the eric von daniken stuff in my household and i didn't know it until i started rereading it for the book jg like he's talking about how maybe minorities or people of color were failed genetic experiments by aliens. Like it really is like Nazi ideology that's being sort of like uh, laundered through these lenses. And the whole point is this, what the fascists and the Nazis did is they pushed back against modernity. They believed, and by the way, they were not wrong in this. They believed that industrialization had hollowed out meaning. Right. That people were just being worked to death. They had nothing to do. They didn't have any of these mythologies or stories that gave them meaning. And they said, guess what? We'll give you some meaning. You know, we'll give you a new religion. And that's what fascism and Nazism were. They were attempts to take old traditionalism plus Christianity and create a new religion. There's a reason, of course, why, you know, all these uh, uh, rallies have giant spectacles, the fire, the iconography, the movements, all of that. It was a religion. And they were using these old religious elements to create a backlash against the hollowing out of meaning. We're in another moment like that. Right now, unfortunately, Christian nationalism is what is starting to push this. This is why QAnonism has been completely uh, subsumed into the Republican Party. People believe QAnon principles, even if they don't know it's QAnon. Uh, it is creating a new ideology that is going to bring these people together. Plus also, again, like Christianity has done, legitimize violence, legitimize anti-democratic actions, including coups, the overturning of elections, things like January 6th. And it's going to create all of the markers necessary for a seizure of power and the rollback of progress. It's the same cycle over and over again. I guess uh, tying this into what has happened with January 6th and also uh, the recent events in Brazil, how would you tie those events into the story you're telling in the Midnight Kingdom? Well, just to be clear, um, probably, um, and we're working on this research-wise, probably the attempted Brazilian coup was funded by the exact same people who funded January 6th. And by the way, they're the same people who, tr who funded Trumpism. They're the same people who funded the Ottawa Truckers Convoy. We're talking about right-wing billionaires who have been spending the last few decades spending their millions and billions of dollars undermining scientists, experts, and democracy, right? We're talking about Cokes, Bradleys, DeVosses, you name it. It's it's a murderer's row of these people. So they fund these things, and which it's not an accident that the January 6th commission didn't discuss a single damn one of them. It didn't come up. Donald Trump was the one person responsible for the whole thing, regardless of the fact these people transported people, they created the movements, all this. Now, on the ground, and this goes to what we've been talking about. Everybody keeps asking me, what is my interpretation of January 6th? There's so many things to talk about there, but 
it's important to point out there's three populations at January 6th. There are paramilitary white supremacist groups, right? We're talking about Proud Boys. We're talking about Oath Keepers, a whole other groups of people. They are dedicated explicitly to violence for these purposes. You have QAnon adherents who show up, including the QAnon shaman, right, who are so far down the rabbit hole that they think the only thing that could possibly get the government back and get the world in working order is a violent military coup. They're there for that. Meanwhile, Who's the third group? It is MAGA supporters, right? In their hats, with their flags. Some of them flew there on private jets. They, through election-denying, fear-mongering, conspiracy theory peddling, radicalization through those wealthy people that we're talking about, they have been primed to join in on this. They could possibly join the QAnon people. They could join the, you know, the street fighters. Or they could see an opportunity to overthrow an election by going into a capital. This is how it always works. These people are always primed for this. And whether society survives, it depends on can you curb that fever a little bit? And just right, real, right. Fa real fast. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say real quick, what, what's so interesting to me about talking about January 6th, you, you, you mentioned the QAnon shaman, right? And um, I know he's become something of a meme right now and, and whatnot, but people like that are, are kind of interesting to me because- you know, we look at it and say, okay, these people are trying to commit treason. But within his own mind, oh, yeah. he doesn't view it as treason. He views it as saving the, the, the country from the treasonous deep state. So to him, he's saving uh, the well, country from traitors. Um, you know, a lot of these people think in their head that this is the proper way to do things, that this is, uh, that, that they are the heroes in their own story. And by the way, this is an important aspect. I'm so glad you brought this up. Like, this is the animating thing. We look at this and we're like, oh, my God, this is horrible. Can you believe these people tried to overthrow the government? These people are heroes in their story. And the really important thing in all of this, and this is what authoritarian, authoritarianism uh, feeds off of. It's, it's three things, actually. One is a loss of confidence in institutions, which, by the way, you have every reason not to trust our institutions. They have been corrupted over and over and over again. You shouldn't trust any politician right now. You shouldn't trust any party now. I'm sorry, but it's true. These institutions corrupted through and through. I, I was going to say in that regard, it's it's like, you know, I'm not a fan of Trump, but when Trump said uh, on, the, on the election uh, campaign in, in 2016 and whatnot, he was saying, you know, oh, all these politicians are bought off. And I know that because- you know, I've bought them off before. He's right. He's, he was telling the truth, and that did resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. And it's not only is that true, but then also, I and, and this is a thing that makes people uncomfortable, the deep state is real. There are unelected people in our government who are there forever. There are unaccountable parts of our government. That is what the administrative state is about. It's a technocracy. There are a bunch of people who control things without ever being voted on and without us ever knowing what's going on. It doesn't mean that Jews are controlling the world. It doesn't mean that there's a you know pedophile conspiracy. He told the truth about some things and it resonated, right? And as it didn't, he didn't mean it. He didn't actually plan on doing anything about it, but that's neither here nor there. People want to be a part of something, which is what authoritarianism does. It says, guess what? You feel lonely. You feel like you're you're alone. Guess what? There are millions of people over here. Look at look at these rallies, right? Look at these giant rallies at Nuremberg. Look at these Berlin rallies. You are part of something larger than yourself, right? That's what religion does. Oh, you feel powerless? Slip on the armband and goose step through your hometown. Guess what? You're not powerless anymore. This is answering a need that people have. In the past, it, and, and by the way, 
I have many problems with someone like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Let's not discount the fact that the New Deal did have racist elements to it and that it did not help, you know, certain communities. That is absolutely true. But I'll tell you what FDR realized. It's whenever you have something like a Great Depression, you have to give people something to do. You have to give people something to believe in. And what we're watching right now is a lot of people who have nothing to believe in. They have nothing to trust. They feel powerless and alone. And these wealthy people are cultivating movements that channel that energy, but it channels that energy in a direction in order to empower themselves. There were just two more things I wanted to touch upon. With with regards to January 6th, I think some people get the narrative wrong in the sense of, you know, I, I'll listen, I'll hear a shock jock like Howard Stern say, what's wrong with all these, you know, crazed hillbillies? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure that it's hillbillies from Appalachia that we're at January 6th. To me, it's like a lot of these people are, are you know, small business owners, people that are aligned to the interests of the right wing for financial reasons. I feel like sometimes we forget, you know, this isn't necessarily no. just completely uneducated uh, people that live in the backwoods of America. And in a way, I think it's offensive to try to paint it that way. Like, oh, it's just poor people that are, that are causing all this trouble because I, I don't think that's what's going on. Well, first of all, I find it offensive as the progeny of backwoods hillbillies, because I, I have to tell you, this isn't happening because people are stupid. This isn't, you know, they, they, they might be ignorant going back to what we talked about in terms of like actual information and weaponized information. Right. But a large component of Trumpism and this authoritarianism. And again, behind the scenes, it is these wealthy and powerful people who recognize an opportunity. They did the same thing with the Tea Party, by the way, for anybody keeping track at home. That was a completely manufactured movement that helped them. Well, guess what? A lot of the people who are at January 6th are not just small business owners. They're basically regional barons. These are people, by the way, who have millions of dollars, right? They, they have several homes. They, they, matter of fact, they might even be the wealthiest person in their town. But in the past, those people were supposed to control the politics. They were supposed to control the world. Now you have international finance. You have people like Elon Musk. I say it all the time. In the 80s and the 90s, if you were wealthy, maybe you had a private jet. Now, if you're really wealthy, you have a private space agency. You are talking about colonizing Mars, you know? So there's like this divide now between like the, the, the middle wealthy and the high wealthy. They want somebody to bring these people down. By the way, Donald Trump, one of those people. He always felt like he was on the outside, even though he was a billionaire. He was rejected from the major sort of ruling class. So you have a lot of people like that. You have a lot of small business owners who have been crushed by a system that they do not understand, that they have been rejected by. Also, let's go ahead and talk about something else the right wing is right about. There are algorithms that change everything in this world that are beyond our control. That is an actual anxiety that you should have, right? I mean, you know, we've seen it just recently with Elon Musk buying Twitter. The algorithms have completely changed. Some of us rely on something like a Twitter for our careers. And, you know, to feel like that thing is outside of your control, whether it's shadow banning, the movement of algorithms, that is actually really terrifying and problematic. And that is a right-wing critique that there should be a left-wing critique of. And the whole point is that, much like what you were saying about what Trump said, it's sort of like, and I, I'm always hesitant to say this because it involves specialized knowledge, it's like professional wrestling. And for some, some people understand this, some people don't. 
Professional wrestling, everybody knows that it's quote-unquote fake. But guess what? Sometimes it's less fake. And when it's less fake, it's more interesting. And that gets people's attentions. That's actually a sales tactic that Donald Trump knows very well, which is tell people a little bit of the truth and they'll believe your bullshit. And that is a lot of what has been going on and a lot of what like this right-wing movement has been doing. It's so interesting that you mentioned pro wrestling because I'm a big pro wrestling fan. Um, you know, my my favorites are guys like Terry Funk, and you know, the, yes. I think there's a, a lot of great storytelling yes. in wrestling, and it, it does rely on sort of mythic archetypes and whatnot. And it's weird because I, I watch guys like Tucker Carlson or before him Bill O'Reilly, and more and more I'm like, you know the 24 hour news cycle feels like pro wrestling. Even with these like you political YouTube streamers, everything plays out almost like a, a kayfabe pro wrestling match, you know? And I mean, you could even take it back to TV with, I think a lot of this is influenced by like the Jerry Springer, Morton Downey Jr. Stuff, but it feels like what we're watching with uh political discourse on shows like Tucker Carlson is essentially just a pro wrestling show. Well, and by the way, uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving people a lot of homework here, but, you know, you, you, you've got you've got my mind going and it's important. If anybody wants to understand the modern moment, go and look up something called the Montreal Screwjob. And the Montreal Screwjob is the moment where um, professional wrestling kind of broke itself, but reformed itself. Like everybody knew for the longest time, like, you know, these matches weren't real. They were scripted. They These people weren't don't really hate each other. They're hanging out backstage. Well, eventually, with something like the Montreal Screwjob, which involves like the boss of the World Wrestling Federation screwing over an actual wrestler on a pay-per-view, like all of a sudden you're like, whoa, 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 that other stuff, that was fake. This is real. And that gains your attention. It is actually very seductive. And what has been discovered after that is that you know, things that you lose faith in. Like, so for instance, I'm a child of the 1980s. I grew up believing that Hulk Hogan was a superhero fighting for the United States of America. You know, when he did battle against like the Iron Sheik, he was fighting foreign forces. He was representing me, you know? And all of a sudden when I get older, I'm like, oh, I don't think this is real. That feels weird. But then all of a sudden he starts having what's called a shoot, which is where he like, something is real here and it gets my attention. All of modern history is based off of that. When you turn on cable news, it's all professional wrestling. It's stomping of the feet while they're throwing punches. And for the longest time, you know, these senators who would do battle on something like Meet the Press, they would get off the show and then they would go have a drink with one another. Now, it's great for fundraising. You know, the, the Republicans are going to kill you. The Democrats are going to kill you. It raises the numbers up and up. Now we're even seeing... Very recent, and this is inside baseball, we're seeing Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder who are having this crazy right-wing feud over them offering Steven Crowder $50 million to join the Daily Wire, and they're having this performative back and forth. It And, and people say to me, you know, is it a grift or is it real? It's both at the exact same time. The principles of professional wrestling are the principles of how we uh, we deal with stories, how we deal with politics. And we are living in a weird moment where everything is absolutely a grift. They're trying to get your money, but there is some real stuff happening. There are some real elements that are taking place that you have to look for. You have to sort through the, the deatrice, but it's, it's there. Last thing I want to touch upon, since we were talking about the, just not just the divide between the left and the right, but I, I think at times... So, so I've read figures. I, I'm very interested in like the sociologist Sigmund Bauman and, and some of the thinkers from the Frankfurt School, you know, like Adorno and, and Herbert Marcuse. And it's interesting because 
they have critiques of the Enlightenment and with through ideas like instrumentalized reason. And I think when people hear that, they say, well, no, I think, isn't it the, the far right-wing reactionaries have criticisms of that stuff? And you could apply this to other things as well, right? Like the, you know, Tucker Carlson has a critique of neoliberalism, but we have our own critique. And the prescriptions to how to deal with the problem differ on the left and the right. But I think sometimes uh, people just sort of shut down. They're like, no, this is a right-wing issue. This is a left-wing issue. No, sometimes it's that the right and the left-wing uh, can both see a problem, and yes. they may even agree descriptively in some ways or have overlap descriptively in what they see the problem as, but their prescriptions are different. So how do we explain that uh, to people that may think, no, this is a right-wing issue or this is simply a left-wing issue? Well, I, I, I'll i go to the place we all knew that I was going to, which is, of course, Marvel movies. And, you know, like like popular culture, like there is something happening here. And I want to go back to that idea that I said of the woke corporation, right? So I always have these conversations with people now and they're like, oh, the media is trying to like program us and indoctrinate us with movies. Look how all these movies have like strong female characters or, you know, they, they're getting rid of like white males who are in leading roles and they're creating, you know, these disparate casts and all this. And they're trying to indoctrinate, which, by the way, dovetails off of the anti-Semitic idea, right? That Jews are in control of Hollywood and they're trying to take over and they're doing this. And that's the Alex Jones. They're coming after the men, right? Well, guess what? They're not doing that because of an ideology. They're not doing that because they believe in this. They're doing it because they think there's money to be made out of it. And I'll go ahead and I'll talk about something like a Nike, right? Nike is a corporation that has exploited God knows how many people. They've gone around the world. They've exploited resources. They've contributed to climate change. They've made like people work in sweatshops. You know, they, they are part of the problem. Well, they went out and they signed Colin Kaepernick, who is a football player who had an actual critique of something that needed critique, which is police violence in the United States of America against people of color. That's an actual critique. They pay him, uh, I want to say it was in the area of $6 million to be a spokesperson for this sneaker company. All of a sudden then, Nike becomes woke, right? They become leftist because they have Colin Kaepernick on that. It has nothing to do with Colin Kaepernick. It has nothing to do with the critique of these problems. What we're starting to argue about are products. We're talking about things that we're supposed to buy that represent ideology. And, and, and what's interesting is you could, I mean, the argument one could make about uh, a corporation like Nike doing that is that they're engaging in, you know, I've heard the term used um, woke washing, where they're yes. they're trying to get you to focus on, hey, look, we are, you know, uh, progressive and whatnot, even if they're they have sweatshops, you know, like yes. it, it's all about branding. It's not really about changing society. Yeah. No. And by the way, like before we recorded this over the past couple of days, there's been like this big controversy over M&Ms, M&Ms and, and, and oh, are they too woke? I don't know if people know this. Mars, which produces M&Ms, which I think is an inferior candy, but that's neither here nor there. Mars uses slavery in their production, human slavery in order to produce their chocolates. They're not woke. They're not leftist. What it turns out is that capitalism and power, anything that that um, puts them in danger, they absorb it and they regurgitate it. It's the way they protect themselves. This, by the way, is how Martin Luther King gets turned into an icon for patience and an icon for just sitting back and not really advocating for yourself by the right wing and by powerful institutions. 
What we have to do is we have to move past the presentation of ideology, right? The presentation of, oh, this is why this movie got made. This is why this product got produced. We have to stop paying for the illusion of ideology, and we have to start looking at what actual ideology is. It's how the wealthy and the powerful protect themselves. And by the way, the same people are making money from woke causes as they are right-wing causes. They've segmented ideology now where there are two parallel economies. Where like on one hand, they're producing this for the woke audience. And on the other hand, they're producing this for the MAGA audience. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it's like, uh, you know, I know Netflix uh, will have a, sh they, they have interesting shows out um, from like, um, I know they had a, a Palestinian TV series and even a, a Palestinian based movie. And, and, to me, that stuff was kind of, oh, that's woke. Uh, at the same time, they have shows like Snowflake Mountain, which are meant to appeal to MAGA. You know? That's so right. Th these corporations sort of play both sides in a way. Well, why wouldn't you? They're, it's money on both sides. It's the Michael Jordan. Republicans buy sneakers, too. You know, it's it actually it's the exact same thing as like how we've arrived at this modern moment of consumerism. The best thing that ever happened, by the way, to corporations and, and these people producing these things was the cultural revolutions of the 1960s and 1970s. It created the need for differing styles. This is how blue jeans became ubiquitous. And by the way, People were able to buy the illusion of being rebels by buying blue jeans, by buying leather jackets, by buying concert tees, by going out listening to rock and roll, by watching the movies that the squares were afraid of. That was the best thing that ever happened to the capitalist structure. So if we start talking about that, when we're talking top down and we're not talking red versus blue or Nike versus new balance, right? When we move past those illusions and we start talking about the actual top-down structure, that's how you can build something. Because I have to tell you, you talk top-down structures, you're not just talking to so-called Biden voters, you're also talking to Trump voters. You're actually talking to the people who believe that they have intractable political differences. And that's the only way we're going to get out of this is by getting rid of these mythologies and these lies and finding the truth. I was just going to say real quick, and we'll we'll start wrapping up, is... um. It's interesting too when we talk about brands and illusions. It's it's amazing the type of figures and and ideas that get assimilated into just being a brand or an image. You know, you mentioned Martin Luther King, and I I, I feel so sad sometimes because I don't think people realize like there was a a, a strategy to everything Martin Luther King did. Uh, you know, he was trying to bring together the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the war against poverty. poverty. You know, he's trying to bring all these things together. And yet I never really learned about that in school. And I don't think I learn it when I watch anything on TV about Martin Luther King. In a way, we've lost how radical he was. We don't get the full image of the man. We sort of just get a brand. I, I, I want to point out something. And and actually, you know, it's it's weird because modern movies are so written through with what we're talking about. It's really hard to find examples of like moments that, that are, are interesting like that. Take a look at the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. And and one of the things that it shows is, of course, how the, the Black Panther movement was like meeting with white supremacist groups. And they were like, listen, we have something in common. Right. We have some. And, and that's not to sit here and say, go out and work with white supremacists. But the point is that you have to start bringing in these different parts together. This, by the way, is why so many people are afraid of actual history. They're afraid of things like critical race theory, which they've completely bastardized and weaponized. Why they're afraid of intersectionality is because when you start actually taking a look at these things and these structures of power, 
there's again, and, and it sounds trite to say, there's 99% of the population against like 1% of the population. You have to divide them. And a lot of these stories that we're talking about, a lot of the stuff in the book, it's about the divisions. It's the intentional divisions that are there in order to protect that 1%. Well, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Uh, Jared Yates Sexton, uh, is there anything you hope that listeners get out of this conversation or what do you hope they get out of the Midnight Kingdom? Um, I want it to be a reexamination of history that shows how power has worked, but also how we can defeat it. Um, I'm hopeful. And the reason I'm hopeful is because uh, there is pushback against this. We're having conversations like this. And also humanity um, fights for freedom. Humanity fights for more rights, like you actually see throughout history, even some of the worst situations. Feudalism, they kept like 99% of the population illiterate. Can I can I interrupt you real quick? And, and I promise, well, yeah. I, I, I only want to delve into this briefly with you, but it's funny because I always hear, um, I always heard growing up in, you know, I, I grew up in the suburbs around right-wing-ish people. Uh, they would always, it's always framed as, oh, the left hates freedom. The left are the ones that hate freedom. We, the right wing, the conservatives, we love freedom. I actually became more left wing and left libertarianism when I was younger uh, because I didn't think libertarianism actually made us more free. In a weird way, I think the left is a liberatory movement. Uh, in a way, I think we want people to be more free. And I think people don't realize that. I, I think uh, the narrative has been that the right is pro-freedom and we're, you know those lefties are anti-freedom. But I think it's the opposite. No, when when right wing people, plus also some liberals, they talk about freedom. They're talking about economic freedom, particularly economic freedom of the elite. The idea right, that they're, they... they're not talking about the freedom to, no. you know, I, I don't see ourselves as free when, you know, I know people that have to work toiling hours after hours at like an Amazon warehouse, you know, and they're not free outside of that. They, they don't have the freedom to really express themselves or explore their own um, hobbies and dreams. Uh, so what freedom do they really have in that think about, sense? Think about the fact that there's so much earned paranoia. Like, can you talk about your working conditions at work? You know, are you giving up your body? Like my family, they they live shorter lives. You know, that's not freedom They're Right now, you know, we live in a country where women uh, have been made to basically have to navigate just God awful oppressive systems in order to have freedom over their own bodies and their own fates. Um, it's not freedom. It's it's not in, 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 but it's a great slogan, which is, by the way, what the right is good at. They're really good at boiling these things down into obfuscating slogans. But it's not about actual freedom. It's about the economic freedom of the elite. And that's it. That's the only thing it's about. So how can my listeners get a copy of your book and how can they keep up with your work? Uh, I would always recommend it, getting it from your local independent bookstore, anywhere books are sold, that's where to go. Um, but yeah, you can find me, unfortunately, on Twitter, JY Sexton. Uh, I have a sub stack called Dispatches from a Collapsing State. I would love if people check that out. Uh, but I just want to say also, thank you so much. This has been uh, one of the best conversations I've had in a very long time, and it's appreciated. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jared Yates Sexton, and you'll check out his book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. As always, if you enjoy the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views.
with Parallax Views. To Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.